You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we're talking with a multi-shore, multi-family office and getting insights into their unique investment philosophy. I'm very excited that joining me today is Danny Roisman, who's the founder of BrainVest Wealth Management. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and let's have a great conversation. Absolutely, and you know, BrainVest is a very unique company. I would say, like, I have a lot of asset managers, a lot of family offices, um, wealth advisory firms on the show. Just the fact that it's multi-shore, I mean, that's already very interesting to me. But anytime I'm talking with a family office, I like to kind of step back and learn what's the story, um, you know, what's your background, and how did you come to found this company? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, well, I, I started my career, uh, I'm Brazilian from origin, like I, I was born and raised in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I started my career in an investment bank doing uh, fixed income proprietary trading. Uh, after four years doing that, I realized it was a great uh, uh, learning process, but trading was not my my thing. And then I moved to to private banking uh, at JP Morgan uh, in São Paulo. Uh, it was the beginning of uh, of a of the asset management industry in Brazil, and they wanted to have someone at the private banking that was more than a wine and dine kind of guy that would be a more um, let's say technical background. So my, my trading background helped me a lot into getting into discussions with potential clients and trying to manage their assets. So well, that's I interesting, you know, hearing about private banking, I didn't realize there were jobs available where you could just wine and dine. I'm like, I, I'd love to work. If I can just work in private banking and wine and dine people, that sounds like a pretty good job. Well, you know, in the beginning of the, you know, like uh, 30 years ago, that was mostly part of the, mostly yeah. part of the job was whining and dining the clients. There was something that I was never eager to do it. I was just <laughs> one of the nitty bit of the investments. That was something that I was more interested about. Sure. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah, oh, there's still today, you see the, like our industry, it's very different, uh, difficult to change. And people, they still believe that, you know, taking someone to golf and, and Inviting them to nice dinners, it's, it's sufficiently enough to, to, have, to give a good service. Well, you know, uh, it's interesting. I'm so, just my experience with private ba banking, Danny, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to hear the rest of your story. This is, I think this is kind of funny because it's happened to me. It's happened to a couple of other people I know. We were members of a private bank and we basically, or private banking division, we got kicked out because they wanted, this was five years ago but they wanted this minimum cash balance. And this was back in the old days, you know, when uh, interest rates, bank deposits were 0%. And I'm like, screw that. I can't have that amount of money just sitting in cash in a bank. So they kicked me out. And now I'm just like, you know what? It's better this way. I'm happy at the regular bank. So anyway, I'm an, I'm an ex-private bank client. You know, I couldn't quite cut it. Well, but... That <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was the that was the reason why I left the bank. Uh, yeah. uh, it it was because of the situation that you know what the bank wanted me to do, or yeah. wanted me to sell, or wanted me to push. That was mm -hmm. against what I believe it was the best interest of the clients, and that's how I decided to to leave the bank. Uh, but again, I was I was I was in J P Morgan in Brazil. Mm -hmm. I started to do offshore uh, uh, investments from some families. 
I was very uh, I was I was the link between the investment banking and the private bank. Mm. So every time the JP Morgan had a mandate to for a sell side uh, on the MA uh, business, I would get involved and would help the process of that family to go through uh, structuring themselves to receive uh, the cash that that sale will 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 uh, uh, you know uh, uh, produce and be ready for when the money comes that they have already the tax structure completely so they would have the vehicles in the, uh, already set up and then a portfolio uh, allocation and a profile already uh, uh, discussed so that we can invest in the money and not uh, uh, just receiving the cash and say well, what should I do now mm-hmm. so I with that I have the opportunity to meet a lot of interesting families uh, through this to this process um, I moved to New York I was transferred to New York to 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 be more close to the uh, to the markets where I was actually uh, uh, investing my, my, my clients uh, money um, and after a brief like I stayed for New York still in JP Morgan for like an hour one year and a half almost two years and then I was offered to move to Switzerland to take care of the Brazilian book of JP Morgan uh, in Switzerland. Uh, and then uh, after a little, a couple of more years in 2003, I decided to leave the bank. Uh, there was the beginning of this very uh, difficult relationship between the bank and the client when there was a lot of uh, part of the pushing, a lot of uh, we have to sell this, we have to sell that. And this is something that was going against my beliefs in really a long-term relationship with do, the family. Do you think that's still going on today, Danny? I mean, with... Yes. yes. I do too. I do too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that's... Uh, unfortunately, uh, um, you have you have targets, you have objectives that your compensation depends on it. So if you really go every, you know, according to what maybe the client's interest is, just as you said, maybe the client said, you know, I want to stay in money market right now. That's a, that is a very effective investment decision. Mm-hmm. For the bank, staying in money market doesn't produce any return on assets. So the bank wants to give you a loan, wants to give you a swap, wants to sell you a structured product, wants to sell you a fund that maybe you don't want to invest, but because it, it pays a, 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 a big commission. So... The bank is a business, so it has to be run and they have to be propped up. They have to report to the shareholders and they have to increase their margins. And a, a client is part of this process. And when you have a, a model that is like that, it's based on that principle. For me, it doesn't work. So I wanted to. Yeah, work- it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it, you know, banks, I don't have anything against banks, but their business model is generating fees. Right. And it's. It's interesting to me because when I think about an RIA or family office, a fiduciary who's charging 1% or, or, or whatever, it's interesting to me that a lot of clients will have mentally, they'll have a hard time wrapping their way around that asset management fee or that, that fee that they're paying the advisor. But I try to tell them, no, no, that's good. You understand the fee that you're paying. It's explicit. It's upfront, detailed, all that versus if you don't understand the fees or you don't see the fees that's you the real problem to me then they're they're much likely to be much higher than one percent if you don't see them right yes yes they are uh and and and, and that's why i i always believe in transparency and 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 and, and being 100 open to the client and showing all the fees that it's involved in every single transaction 
So the client can understand if it, he wants to go that way or if you want to go this way. So that's why the IRA model in the US, uh, you know, the, uh, the external asset manager is the model that we have here in Switzerland and uh, uh, also in Brazil uh, that we have offices uh, work very well. We are 100% aligned with the clients. Uh, we only get paid by the clients. Every money that we make from, that we can receive from any other uh, uh, partner goes straight to the client. Uh, so we pass any savings, any retrocessions, everything. That now, is that, okay. Pay. So for, for a, a family office or multifamily office, and maybe it's different by country, is that becoming more normal where if you, you know, receive a commission or whatever for being part of a deal that you pass that through to the client, is that becoming the norm or is that something that differentiates you right now? Uh, that's becoming the standard. It's, 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 it's funny that you ask when I founded Brainvest, when I set up the first contract with the first custodian bank that was going to hold my client's assets, I was the first contract of that institution, which is one of the top three, still today, top three private banks here in Switzerland, that didn't have a contract that allowed the bank to pay us a retrocession. Mm. And the bank said, how are you going to survive? And I said, I'm going to survive by the money that my client is going to pay me. I said, but it doesn't make any sense. I want, I say, look, if you, if you guys, if you guys want to pay me back 50% of everything that you charge the client, that's excellent. If you charge half a percent, we're going to charge the client 0.25. The client will see exactly how much he's paying. And I'm going to charge my fee on top of that. So everything 100% transparent. At the time, that was the exception. Now, that's, the, that's more or less the norm. Uh, it's growing a lot. Uh, now it's the standard, I would say. Uh, even if you still have to receive retrocession, you have to disclose it to the client here in Switzerland. You have to say to the client how much you're getting uh, paid by X, Y, Z in order for to invest in whatever that you're investing, which is also great. If the client says, I don't want to pay a minimum and I want you to get paid by whatever that you're selling, as long as it's transparent and the clients understand how much, as you said, they are paying, it also works. I always believe that you know the client can work whatever fits him better. Uh, as long as the playing field is safe, everybody's transparent and they know exactly what's going on. So in Switzerland, then it sounds to me like it's uh, maybe even legally required, like in, in the States, different types of advisors may have a fiduciary responsibility. Other types of advisors do not have a fiduciary responsibility. Um, you know, and to be fair, it's complicated because uh, providing services to clients with uh, assets below a certain amount, it can become, it's not as economical, right? It's its harder to provide service. So it's a complex issue. I'm not here to pass judgment on anyone, um, but it sounds to me like the way you've set things up almost because you're in these three countries, you have like a best practice or maybe a standard, and then you're applying it equally to the clients in every country, regardless of of their law, I guess, or their legal requirements. Yes, that's that's our our model. We can we can work differently in the US. We can work differently in in, in Brazil. Uh, there's other options as well. Uh, for us, it doesn't matter. That's how we operate. Uh, we we started the business here in Switzerland uh, because I was here. My clients had uh, uh, their money offshore, and we are investing uh, uh, abroad. Uh, 
at one point, the client said, you are providing such a great service that I want you to do the same thing for me in my local country, in Brazil. I want you to apply the same kind of uh, service and, and allocation and, 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 and uh, uh, portfolio construction in Brazil as well. That's why we started our office in, in, in Brazil. We opened in 2007. Uh, then we start managing our clients onshore accounts uh, in local uh, denominated currency. Uh, you said we were multi-shore. Yeah, in 2017, we opened an office in Miami. Uh, again, because the clients required us to do so. Uh, I was going to say that's where all the Brazilians are in the United States, right? In in Miami or many oh, of yeah, them. Yeah, most yes. <laughs> Not only we, 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 we right now we are like a Latin focused uh, multifamily office, so we have families from Latin America. Uh, yeah. Not only Brazil. We started in Brazil. Now we are more Latin, but yes, Miami uh, at the at the time was and still is the private banking center for uh, uh, Latin Americans. Okay. Uh, and uh, now it's getting. Not only for Latin Americans, it's getting like uh, even for US. There's so many people from New York moving to Miami because of everything that is going I, on. I love like, Miami. I have to. Yeah, I I actually was born in Florida, but I didn't grow up there really. But recently visited Miami, and I was just reminded how much I love Florida. It's just a great great town. Totally. I'm curious though. So operating in the US, operating in Switzerland, operating in Brazil, is there a different, you know, business climate? What about the cultural client climate? Do clients have different expectations or or maybe at this point ultra high net worth maybe has a kind of similar expectations regardless of where they are in the world to be honest with you we are catering for the same type of clients yeah uh the when we when we when we started our business in the us it was because some clients that were that they had their money here in switzerland decided that they wanted to be uh, managed out of the us because of proximity they were like traveling more to us than they were traveling back to switzerland and also because especially one there was one specific family that their children became american they went to study abroad they were working in the us and then the moment that became us resident we needed to have a specific license to be able to manage their money and the client said look i need you to take care of my children's money now uh, and now because they are americans you have to figure it out and then we said you know what i think this isn't going to be uh, not only your case see we're going to see more and more of the situations that families are going to be more complex especially mm -hmm. we cater to the ultra high net worth um, th their children are going to be living in the US, in Europe, in Asia, whatever. And you have to have a structure that's gonna be able to take care of them no matter what they are. Different jurisdictions, different tax uh, profiles, different uh, succession uh, issues, inheritance uh, issues, um, managing the assets in a different way. Uh, so, hey, well, let me, you know, you mentioned, this is something that always fascinates me. I, by the way, I love talking with family offices because how, how do I, how, how should I phrase this? If you're not a family office, you're always kind of wondering what goes inside a family office. And we've had uh, DJ Van Curren on from the Family Office Real Estate Institute. And he always says, if you know one family office, you know one family office, right? Because every family is different. Every patriarch is different. Every dynamic is different. How much of your job, you know, because you, you're talking about, you know, on the one hand, 
you're very interested in the the fundamentals, the the uh, you know the pro forma, the underwriting, the nuts and bolts of the investments. But so much of running the family office is client focused, you know. And I'm almost thinking like family drama and the sorts of problems that ultra high net worth people have. So how much of running BrainVest or working with ultra high net worth families, how much of it is that soft, you know, people skills, people, pro just, you know, human being type skills versus, you know, just straight up managing the portfolio? It's to be honest with you, I would say it's, 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 I would not say 50, 50, they are equally important. And, yeah. and that's why you have to cater to, to, to all these aspects with the same uh, attention and importance. And that's why we decided that we need to have different people, different areas to tackle specifically one of these problems. So we have what we call family office solutions, which is a group of people that only caters to that kind of uh, uh, concerns that you mentioned. They look at the more, let's say, emotional or soft aspects of the life of a client is, uh, I'm, and I'm going to die, what's going to happen? Uh, uh, where my children are living abroad, uh, what's, what means that, you know, in order for me, what's the more efficient way to, to, to transfer my uh, uh, wealth to them, either if I'm alive or after my death? Um, what happens if they move from one place to another? If their children are different, how, how can I be able to perpetuate my, my wealth? So yeah. all these discussions... They're very valid. They're very important. Uh, I said, you know, it doesn't matter how efficient you are on your portfolio management. If you screw up on the taxes, you're going to pay more taxes than you're going to return on your investments. So one thing is very linked to another, and you have to tackle them individually with people that are focused on doing exactly that kind of job. That's why but, we are- but you, need a, but you also need someone at the top who's seeing the big picture, right? With the relationship. Exactly. And-, okay. and, and and that's why what we do is that uh, on the family office solutions, we have uh, uh, the head, like, you know, the person we, we call him, he's the, you know, the conductor. Mm -hmm. He's the guy that, you know, orchestra, you know, puts all the plan together. You have different, you know, players on the orchestra, uh, but if they don't play in unison, you know, it's a mess. So yeah. you have someone that has to take control of everything. And, um, and we believe that this goes on the family office solutions. And, and it's interesting because like, this is something that we learned. Uh, we were very lucky that when we started the company here in Switzerland, we, I, was, uh, I was getting uh, uh, to get to know very uh, large single family offices here. And we start to exchange a lot of information because you know, Brazil in the beginning of the, of the 21st century, it was very hot, a lot of foreign investors were going to invest in Brazil. At the time, we were 100% Brazilian focused. So they're coming to us and say, can you help me to find someone uh, that knows pulp and paper? You know, Brazil, it's a large country. But also, the wealth is very concentrated. So we know more or less everyone there. So I was putting this very large South African mining company uh, that belongs to this single family office to talk to a large a Brazilian family that also owns uh, uh, some mining business as well. So when we start making that relationship, we start getting to know the single family offices better. And, and then uh, we're able to understand how they were managing uh, all the aspects of this very large family offices. 
And what we did is they say, look, if it's working so well for these families that have been in some cases on the fourth generation already. Well, that's gonna- already that's already amazing, right? Because usually it only usually it's gone by the third generation. Isn't that statistically speaking? So if I it's hear fourth generation, I'm thinking that family has good planning, good processes. They probably have a family mission statement and oh, yeah. a culture of stewardship. Exactly. And it's not only one where I, I can name like, uh, you know, more than 15 that we that we talked that are already passing that uh, that 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 milestone and 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 going strong. Uh, and then I, I applied what what I learned with them in order to create exactly the same type of uh, of of, uh, of infrastructure and methodology to cater to uh, our families. Uh, and. And that was another thing that was very uh, important for us. And I think that that's, that's how we're able to uh, migrate the way that we are investing our clients into a very different way. Uh, because, you know, we're talking about an alternative investment uh, podcast. So we are, I have been investing in alternatives for a long time. This is something that I'm very passionate about. I started uh, in the mid-90s with hedge funds. When hedge funds were giving... 15, 20% per year, no correlation. Uh, it was beautiful. You know, I, I in the good I, old I, days, right? The good old days. Oh, no, I said <laughs> I, I had money at medallion, you know, like uh, we were LP at medallion. So, you know, having that kind of manager, it's 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 amazing. Unfortunately, we got our money back because they returned all the capital. Mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, the and and I think it's going to the roots of of the families of Brazil. You know, Brazil has uh, during until '94 for more than 20 years, uh, it had a very difficult uh, problem with inflation. So yeah. Brazil was it had a hyperinflation uh, for a period of time. I was a fixed income trader, as I mentioned to you, in a moment that you know the the daily interest rate was around four or five percent daily. So wow. I know about inflation <laughs> and, uh, and all the Brazilians. Well, it's they- funny. It's, it's, it's just funny, Danny, when I hear bond trader, you know, that's either, in my opinion, I've never traded bonds. It's either going to be the most boring job in the world or the most exciting and stressful job in the world. Right. Like it, I feel like it could be either depending on what's going on. It's crazy. Like yeah. uh, <laughs> at that time, at the time, you know, our universe were, was ter- were thirty days. We could not go over thirty days. That was the universe that we could imagine trading wow. fixed income, and the longest you can go at thirty days. But but it's still very interesting. But the psyche of the Brazilian uh, at the time, and most Latin Americans are very, as I said, they are very alike because they all been through this process: Argentinians, Chile, Chileans, uh, you know, Venezuelans. Uh, Colombians, they all have been going through this process. So for a family, for a Brazilian family, when they were talking about offshore, they they were never, they could not understand the concept of the portfolio going down, losing money. They didn't understand this concept. Because when you have a high inflation, you have the monetary, uh, uh, you know, you have the indexation of, of, of the inflation in everything. So it always goes up. Your real return in nominal small. terms, in nominal, in nominal terms, terms. terms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was very difficult for them to understand that you know you can invest in a bond and you can lose money in a bond because mm. 
it's fixed income, it can only go up. Yeah. So the solution for us and for me, when, 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 when I was uh, uh, trying to invest this portfolio of these clients and when, at the time when, when I start looking at, you know, what the model of the bank, uh, the asset allocation model that they were presenting, it was the traditional 4060, you know, very heavy equity related. And so is a six, sorry, a dumb question. Is a 60-40 for Brazilian client? You know, this is something that Meb Faber talks about a lot is uh, the home country bias. So, you know, client too many clients in the United States will have 60% in stocks or 50% in stocks. It will be almost all in VTI or S&P 500. Is this the case also in Brazil where... No. Okay. No. Uh, and to be honest with you, until 2010 or something like that, I think less than half a percent of Brazilians invest in stocks. Whoa. Uh, Wow. Yeah, the, the stock market it's a it's a new thing in Brazil. Mm. Although it has been a long time, but the, the, the market is very small. It's growing now, but right now, uh, uh, over the last 10, 15 years, that it started to really get more uh, uh, popular in terms of like small investors having been able to invest in equity. So when so I was also, so I'm sorry, ultra high net worth then in Brazil, if they're investing in stocks with. At that time, would they typically be investing in the S and P, like uh, in in well, the U.S. It, stock market, or in, in, in the U.S.? No, no. At that time, they would try to again. That's the problem with the Brazilian. They would try to invest in something that they were comfortable. So they were also investing, even they were going offshore. They were going to Brazilian stocks. This is just uh, blowing my mind because it's the things that we take for granted. Oh yeah, you know, in the United States, like you take it for granted. Start with a 60-40 if you want to allocate to alternatives, put 25% in alternatives, you know, whatever. It's just part of the backdrop here, having a well-functioning stock market. And we have crises, we have high inflation, but not a crisis like that where the interest rate's 4% a day. Nothing on that scale. And, and that changes completely the, the way that an investor thinks. So for Brazilians, stock market was something that was because you had so much money on the fixed income that you only invest in fixed income. So when 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 you go into even today when you talk to a Brazilian when you say that you're gonna put twenty percent in equities that's very aggressive like it's oh my god I'm gonna go twenty percent in equities it's still big. So the sixty forty when you say sixty equities forty fixed income is something that it will never be wow. accepted by a Brazilian investor, especially when I started. So having the opportunity to show to clients that there was a way to invest in an asset class that was totally uncorrelated to the market, but the most importantly was uh, it geared to an absolute return focus. That was the key thing that unlocked uh, the potential for my clients to invest. Because when they take their money out of Brazil, they wanted to have some sort of uh, security that you know to escape you know the the all the issues that you have in Brazil. You know the sometimes you had the political uh, uh, risks. Uh, you know you know in imagine that in, in 1990, uh, you know the government confiscated everybody's assets. Hmm. Like there was a really like the all the money that you had in the bank was frozen for 18 months. You could not have access. 
So <laughs> resilience that's gonna that's that's gonna be the type of thing. You know, it's interesting, Danny, when you talk about that. It's like, um, like the generation that lived through World War II. Exactly. You know that if you go through some kind of experience like that where it seems like well in europe society might come crashing down or or war or you know food is being rationed or uh hyperinflation that's going to literally change the way you think about money or about security for the rest of your life and probably even you're going to pass on some of those beliefs to your children even you know it's a generation that we're now now it, the new generation is the one that doesn't have that kind of a, you know the the 20 year olds the 25 year olds the millennials they are the ones who didn't have that uh, experience and so now they are more open to invest in equities and and and, and other but, stuff but so- that but that it was a bad experience but it opened the door to the concept of absolute return and it sounds to me like that sounds to me like it was almost the theme or the the genesis of Brainvest and your company around this concept of absolute return that resonated with this client base, ultra high net worth individuals in Latin America and Brazil. Yes. yes. Is that still? And so you grew with that philosophy, it sounds like. Is that still your philosophy even to the present day or has it evolved over time? The philosophy is exactly the same. Uh, our objective is capital preservation for our clients. Mm. Uh, whatever, with the with a small nominal, with a sorry, with a small real growth over time. So in terms of what it, what it is, it's like what is capital preservation? You have to get inflation minimum plus four to six percent. If you have that kind of return, you can, you know, take your your money for a long time. It, your purchasing power will be preserved, and you gotta be able to continue to enjoy and to pass on uh, the wealth. That uh, I mean that Danny, that sounds to me almost like a perpetual if it's uh four or five percent real return per year, six percent real return per year, I can withdraw four percent a year and my it's growing. That's that's the idea. Uh yeah. that's the idea of capital preservation that we wanted to uh start uh giving to clients. So when we started at the time, we were doing a portfolio that was mostly Hedge funds, we, you know, we're talking about 40% already. We had 40% of our clients normally invested in, in hedge funds. 60% were mostly fixed income. Mm. Uh, stocks, very little. From time, you know, sometimes, you know, 5%, 10%, but that was uh, not, not more than that. That was the initial kind of asset allocation when we started. And that just uh, sounds crazy. <laughs> I, that, I mean, as a US. As a U.S. investor, the concept of your, your portfolio would be mostly fixed income and hedge funds. I understand it. Just that sounds so wild to me because in the States, you'd be in stocks and bonds and then yeah. maybe five, you know, five asset classes later, then real estate, then maybe commodity, and maybe you end up investing in hedge funds. So it's just that seems backwards, you know. I know, to- I know. Uh, it is. It's not traditional, and, and and again, that's why I said we are a different animal in all aspects that we have been. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. It's good. It's. I mean, it's it's again, good. Thank God we have we we have the track record, and we can show that we have achieved that. Uh, yeah. Our clients have achieved over you know the almost twenty years 
that they are already with Brainvest and over 30 years they are working with me, they have that kind of return. So it does work. Uh, we have to make big changes. Now, today, the asset allocation is completely different. And I'm going to explain why we had to change. Uh, uh, but the most important thing is that, and, and that comes why alternatives has also been such a strong uh, part of the portfolio, but also create another very different, different type of, uh, of behavior that we at Brainvest have uh, with investments uh, and with, uh, with governance mm. uh, regarding investments. We had 40% of our assets in hedge funds. How can I make sure that uh, my macro view, the, the view that I have that I had to be implemented in the portfolios were aligned with what 20, 25, 30 hedge fund managers were doing. So if I didn't have a way to kind of have some control out of it, I would not be able to have a portfolio construction that worked. So... I mean, couldn't some of those hedge funds even be betting against each other? Couldn't they be taking... Exactly. Exactly. So you had so when 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 I was figuring it out, I said, look, I was saying I need to have first a white label fund. I want to work on a fund of fund basis with someone that has deep knowledge of that industry that can go through every hedge fund strategy and portfolio. And make sure that we can create a portfolio that not only is in line within that portfolio, but also in line with our view. So that's what we started. We started with a with a fund of funds that it was managed only to us by a very good manager here in Switzerland at the time is what Rothschild. Uh, they created the first hedge fund of of uh, the fund of funds of hedge funds in 1969. The fund is still in existence. So uh, they had a huge experience on that. And the most importantly, they understood what I needed. And then we created the, our fund of funds of hedge funds that we still exist. We still invest in them today. So uh, it, we, we, we started in 2006 and still uh, working uh, uh, as of the same, the same, the same team. The same, they are not at Rothschild anymore, but they're still the same team managing it. Uh, but it, it works very well since the beginning. Uh, but when, when 2008 came, then was a major issue, uh, uh, for me with the great financial crisis, because, um, we were, we were, I would not say lucky, but because of the governance that we had. And again, remember that I'm a fixed income trader by, by, uh, 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 by formation. So I don't know. You what, is that, what does that mean? No, like, re you know, uh, spell it out. What's the implication? Just that you're risk averse, that you spot, you spot oh, risks or what? Yes, yes. For me, it was very simple. And in, in, in the beginning of 2007, when I look and again, remember that I had fixed income and I have uh, 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 hedge funds. Um, when I looked in the beginning of 2007 of the spread between the AAA and the B. It was, I think at the time, the narrowest it has been ever. So for me as a fixed income trader, I said, why I am taking the risk of investing a triple B? Run away, run away, right? Run away. Run away. Something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. yes. I don't know what's going to happen, but there's only one way to go. 
So I we started selling all our high yield exposure. We had a lot of high yields. We had a lot of corporate bonds. Uh, we we started to change to high grade uh, corporate, but we had one of the one of the biggest parts that we have in our hedge fund portfolio was some distress and credit managers that work at credit arbitrage. They did a lot of strategies into the fixed income uh, space. And remember that when I said that we need to have governance, if I'm in exiting the, uh, the, my risk uh, in credit on my fixed income portfolio, I have to do the same thing on my hedge fund portfolio. Wow. So I had a meeting. So I had a meeting with a manager. I said, look, this is what I'm doing. I want you to unwind our part of our credit uh, and uh, distress uh, credit uh, portfolio. And let's move it into macro, to CTA, to all the other strategies that are still going to perform. And, and they start doing it. Two months later, they called me and they said, Danny, we have a problem. Because of the liquidity of some of the funds, and because of the time to unwind this position, you have a tail risk. And I understand that you don't want to have that risk. So we have to be creative in how we're going to manage that. And, and that's sometimes, you know, <laughs> things happen, by the way. They came to me and said, look, we have a very good manager that we are investing. It's a merger arbitrage guy. The guy is very smart. But he sees that you, there is some something weird going on in the market and he's creating a specific fund to do in one specific trade that is not going to cost you more than five six percent per year but he's going to be short in some credit structures that if the credit market really collapses or have a correction you're going to make money out of this position and it's going to compensate for the tail risk that you still have on the other positions. It's a, it was a, a hedge. If you make that investment, it's a hedge against your unwinding that's happening. It was the, the idea was that was to do a hedge. Yeah. But the name of that guy was called John Paulson. And, <laughs> and, he, was, and he was doing that trade was he was sporting the soup prime. Uh, and we that's made a kill. So our, in 2007, our hedge fund portfolio went up 21%. Instead of hedging, we made a huge... So our hedge fund portfolio on the great financial crisis, we made money out of it, which is uh, uh, very... Looking backward, it, it, it's like it, it's very difficult to, for someone to understand what happened. But now, Dan yeah, Danny, I have to ask, though. So this is interesting. You know, this is a, a concept to me is that you had the wisdom to set up this top-level structure with governance. Yes. But then underneath that governance, you're making the decision to unwind some of these fixed income trades. And you're admitting, I love, by the way, I just love how honest you are. You don't necessarily identify the tail risk or you're, that's not even necessarily on your radar in that moment, of that exact moment where you're on. But that thing that you did initially, this having the wisdom to you know set up the governance, that system that you set up is what led to the good results. So it's like day to day, you can make a mistake day to day. We all make mistakes, right? Well, you, me, anybody yeah. can make a mistake, but just the wisdom of setting up that governance structure is what sounds like what essentially saved you or what led to this very good result for you and your clients. Exactly. And, 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 
that was very important for us because look what we what we built it's based on 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 uh, on the trust that the client had on us in order to really invest and safeguard their their, their wealth so i i took that very i still take it very seriously and 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 for me uh not being able to and 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 again sometimes you know it's just with the people that you work with that helps you a little bit like the guy that I would work for four years at a fixed income trader with my boss, we was like uh, he was the head trader, and the guy still today he's the considered the best hedge fund manager in Brazil. Uh, he was my, my 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 boss, and he was my mentor. Uh, and he he's a pessimistic by nature, so I'm a pessimistic by nature. And he always told me that look, what the pessimist makes in one day, it takes 10 years for the optimist, uh, the optimist guy to, to, to achieve. <laughs> so if you think about the worst case scenario and you yeah. get it prepared, uh, it will make a big difference. So for me, everything that I do, I always look at what the worst can happen. I, I love that. And, you know, you mentioned some, some families, some clients, you know, maintaining their wealth, maintaining the legacy into the fourth generation. And I think... You have to have that kind of a mindset, right? Because it really, you know, with the use of leverage and mm -hmm. other mistakes, they can oh, one mistake can wipe out everything. And you know, we're we're almost out of time, but I, I have one more question for you. And you yes. know, you've been so you've been so generous, and I love just the wisdom that you're sharing. You know, for me, it's not just about asset classes or particular trades. It's more. I really appreciate your philosophy. Danny, yeah. but okay, the, uh, I, this is a, an abstract question. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, a what if. Let's say that because uh, because so many of these clients and these family offices they start with a liquidity event, right? And yes. someone may just overnight have a fortune. So let's say you know I, I'm I'm a prototypical client. Uh, Netflix comes to me and they say, Andy, we love the alternative investment podcast. We want it's a we want to buy this concept and put it on Netflix. Here's a check for a hundred million dollars. So just overnight, I have a hundred. I'm a TV star, and now I have this fortune. Now I'm ultra high net worth. What's what's the first thing I need to do, or, or even like the first thirty days, the first ninety days? What are the the key things to get in place first? You know, after a liquidity event, when I when a person becomes ultra high net worth. Well, I would say before, when the first thing you have to do is that to, to set up your business in a way that when you sell it, it's going to be efficiently in order to how you're going to uh, pay the taxes on it because that's already creates a big difference. So always plan ahead in terms of, uh, even if you don't think it's going to happen, always think that it might. Again, think about, you know, uh, the, in this, the best case scenario, if I sell my business for a fortune, what I have to do now that it's still small or still growing, that if that happens, I'm going to be more efficient in the way that I'm going to get. So you have to think about always thinking in front, uh, even though that it might not be a possibility, but be prepared. Sure. Uh, so preparing how you're going to be able to cash out, that's very important. Uh, when you cash out, the first thing is uh, when you start having the discussions. And, and that's why we one of our... We have some vertical 
clients. And one of our, of our uh, uh, verticals, it's what we call tech founders. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we invest so much in venture capital and we met these guys when they start their, their business, we start giving them advice. Even though they're not our clients, they don't have any money. Mm-hmm. They don't have pizza money for sure. <laughs> they're just grinding and, and, and building their business. But for us, at one point, this guy, it's going to exit in a huge IPO and it's yep. going to be big a billionaire. So we start preparing him in how he's going to be able to manage and cope and understand when he's not going to be an entrepreneur anymore and he's going to be ultra high network. So there's a lot of education in this process of understanding what is the asset classes, what you want to do, and, and, and how you can uh, invest soundly and uh, uh, for, uh, for a long term. Uh, but the most important thing that I would say, and I think that's why being Brazilian and coming from, you know, with this Brazilian kind of mentality, uh, I, would, I would make a, like a, you know, a summary that for us, it's not, we don't look about the upside. For us, it's always about the downside. We don't want to lose money. That's why the absolute return concept of the, of, of the portfolio is so important because we are in the compounding game. And the compounding game only works if you are constantly making money. Doesn't yeah. if you go down 25%, for you to go back to that initial level, you have to go up 50%. Uh, so every time that you know that you're just surfing the waves and you're just constantly going through, yeah, over a long period of time, you will make money. But when you're talking someone that has already a large sum of money that wants to really, uh, uh, as I said, perpetuate that, that wealth, it's not about how much do you make, it's how much you don't lose. Uh, and, and that's why every investment that we do, especially the alternatives, for us, when we do the underwriting, when we look at every single deal, for me, the worst case scenario, again, I'm pessimistic, I, when, I, when, I, when I underwrite and I put a really strong stress test, yeah. Worst case scenario, I have to get my money back. If if the worst case scenario I get my money back, okay, let's 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 look at this and then and let's do it. Oh, sometimes you have to give up a lot of good deals because of that. Yeah, that's fine. And and I learned that from my very first family that worked with me, you know, the principal, which is still a very, very, very wise guy. And he said to me, Danny, for you to succeed in your business, if you think about, we don't care about not making the best deal of your life. Really, really do care of not making the worst deal of your life. You know, that's so interesting uh, because I feel like I've heard that from Warren Buffett. You know, maybe I don't know. It is. No, yeah. And I'm not saying that you got it from him, but just that concept of, both in life and in an investment track record, if you can avoid those three or four huge mistakes and, you know, zooming out, if you can avoid those big, big, you know, those really, really bad days, really bad mistakes that can take years to recover from, um, that's like you said, perpetuating generational wealth. That's very, very, very important. I just, I, I, I love that philosophy, Danny. I know that definitely will resonate with a lot of our audience. I know we're out of time, but but that being said, where can our audience, our listeners who are high net worth or ultra high net worth, 
where can they go to learn more about Brain West, uh, excuse me, Brain Best Wealth Management? Well, they, you know, we have a, if they go to our website, you know, brainvest.com, they can understand a little bit about the philosophy, the investments that we do, the geography that, that we, that we, we, we do uh, invest. Uh, we, we're, we're, we're starting to, this year, we're going to open an office in Singapore. So we need to get into Asia as well. It's one third of the GDP worldwide. So we're missing that part. It's important. We have clients moving again, moving to Asia. So we have to follow them. Uh, <laughs> Are you going to get a private jet, Danny? You, you're no, I'm not. So, okay. yeah, I, I, I learned from my clients, you know, it's not worth it. Um, you can ride in there. It's better to ride on their jets, right? It's like you don't want to have the boat. You want them to have the boat and invite yeah, you yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but if, 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 you know, we have a, we have a link there, you have, uh, you know, our email, you know, please, we, we, we love what we do. Uh, and I think we, uh, uh, we, we will definitely be happy to, to talk to anyone that it's interesting to learn more about, uh, our story and what, uh, what we have accomplished and what we still can do for not our clients, but for anybody else. I love it. And I'll be sure to link to your website in our show notes, which are always available at wealthchannel.com. Danny, thanks again for joining the show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Congratulations on the podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.